0: to the Grind to Growth to Greatness podcast. The best and brightest entrepreneurs, CEOs, creators, athletes. We'll talk to them all and we'll get the good, the bad, and the ugly on how they made it. Decoding the secrets of success. Grind to Growth to Greatness podcast. Unveiling the path to success. And now your host, Terry Barr.
1: And we're off. Hey, everyone. It's Terry Barr, your host of Grind to Growth to Greatness. And I have a special guest tonight. He is somebody I've gotten to know over the last three or four years. But until I started doing these interviews, I didn't know a lot about this person. But I am super excited to introduce you to him. His name is Chris Gorsuch. He is the owner of Real River Adventures right here in central Pennsylvania. I'm going to simplify and say he is a fishing guide on the Susquehanna and other places. So he's a river guy. He's a running river guide and uh, fishes mostly for smallmouth bass. And uh, I'm just really excited for you to hear his story. It's not all about fishing, although there's some great stories in here, but uh, he came from an IT, we'll call it IT background, and worked for Bell Labs for almost 30 years. They did research and development for ATT and some of these other companies and he'll obviously we'll get into that in a few minutes. But in this area, he's married to his lovely wife Doreen. They have two adult kids, Pam and Shane. They call her Pammy. Like I said, he spent about 30 years as a design engineer. And um I tell you, I sent these questions out. I sent them to every interviewee. And Chris really took some time to give me the answers written out. So I had a great time reading these and Hearing his story, but now I get to bring it to you. So, welcome in, Chris. Thanks for being here, and I'm really excited about hearing your story and letting other people hear where you're at in your life, how we got here. So, welcome in. Thank you. So, I guess what we want to do, Chris, is we want to start out at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me where you grew up. Tell me about your family and how things started. So, my family is originally from South Central
2: Pennsylvania, and Long before I was born, my mom and dad, after we were married, moved to New York State. They lived in the Hudson Valley and worked in the Hudson Valley, and they're still there today. So my dad still runs, actually just retired this year from uh, his automotive shop, and uh, that's where I did all my hunting and fishing as a youth. And then my grandfather, of course, from the Mount Union area, Huntington Mount Union area, he would hijack me every summer and take me away from my mother for a week or two or three. And we would spend our time fishing the Juniata river out of a, a homemade John boat that was built out of wood. We would usually build them around Easter. And then, that uh, we would float down the river so far, chain into a tree. My uncle would pick us up, float down the river the next day. It's still further, a little further until we got to a campground at the bottom where the Susquehanna and the Juniata meet okay. in Duncannon, the campground there at the riverfront campground. And, uh, at the time it was owned by Leroy. Leroy. Leroy, yeah. Okay. And uh our last time together we would, you know, pour kerosene on it and burn the boat. Wow. And it, so you're like a modern day
1: Tom Sawyer That's what it felt like. Yeah. Cane poles. Wow. Helger mites. Very cool. Did you have a lot of success when you were a kid? Did you, you It was from? a lot of a lot of
2: success. The river back then, we're talking, you know, the early seventies was just jam-packed of eight, nine, ten inch smallmouth that would eat anything especially yeah. if you had live bait
1: yeah well i know that river the susquehanna river at least has gone through some ups and downs over the past few years and the the fishery is evidently and you can speak to this but the fishery has gone through some tough times and i guess it's kind of back on its way back up but uh
2: yeah and nature seems to be healing itself in that department uh-huh. i think the state helped a little bit with some moratoriums and uh, catch and release only but uh, over the last 10 years, it's really improved from where it was in the early 2000, yeah. 2002.
1: So now your dad, you talked about your dad working in uh, the automotive business, had his own automotive shop and said it's been there for over 50 years. Was your dad able to get out and fish with you also? Or was he just, was he a work guy? He worked a lot.
2: I think he worked a lot, but we did spend a lot of vacations. But we, every year we would spend two weeks someplace. It was almost always near either the ocean or it was on a rate lake or a river mm-hmm. place. So we would fish then. He knew that I was into fishing. I think he he tolerated it. And he still fishes me that, today. Oh does he? But I think yeah. he I don't think it's his passion. His passion was boat hunting. So you that know was a he went into archery a lot. And um I enjoyed hunting but the fishing thing really has me has my blood. Got the bug, huh? Yeah. Got the
1: bug. And so your your grandfather he would pick up the slack when when dad was working a lot and you had summers off. So you could
2: Yeah, my out. grandfather and I were very much you know, it was one of those things where you you'd say one
1: more cast and an hour later you were still casting. Still casting. Very, very interesting. What do you think as a young boy really drew you to fishing overall? You know, I was a hunter as a young kid. I loved to go out squirrel hunting. And then I kind of went through a phase where I really enjoyed fishing, caught my eye, and then I back to bow hunting. But sometimes it it fascinates me when people like yourself have a passion that is a lifelong passion. That never kind of wanes. My lifelong passions have changed, you know, and I'm not sure why. I love to fish a lot. I love to hunt. I love to be in the outdoors, but I have other things that I like to do as well. But why do you think the fishing really kind of caught you? I think it was, you
2: know, it almost had to be the way that my grandfather brought me into it. And it was one of those relationships that when you catch a fish and everybody's happy, I can remember him being Thrill when I caught my very first bass. I mean, I can remember that. And I couldn't have been very old. And my, see, my my grandfather, my aunts, my aunt Barb and Betty took me out when I was, I might've been three years old fishing for trout. And I, that it's a fun story to hear from them. But I just remember when you were out there, it was, I had such a passion for it. It was almost an addiction. I mean, from a very early age, it's all I wanted to do. I mean, I can remember dragging my cousin Kevin out to fish for suckers. I mean, he was such. Never probably thanked him enough, but he was such a patient older cousin. because yeah. he would straddle with me over the summers to take me out. You know, and I would have to walk down this long railroad bed to get to a stream that was almost choked completely, and it had these little chub suckers in there. And that's yeah. all I wanted to do: yeah. fish for fish for them. And then as I got older, I went to everybody, every farmer in the area in the Hudson Valley in the Casco Mountains, if they had a pond. Or if I had access to the river or one of the, the bigger creeks that led to the river, I was begging people to let me on their property to fish. Yeah. And I had a network, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I spoozed with everybody. I would mow a lawn or I would help pick fruit at a farm stand so that I could fish on these farm ponds. And they would always tell me, I don't think there's anything in there. But, you know, there always was. There's always something in there. So I fished and I can remember a friend of mine, John, who literally went to my mother when I was about 10 years old and said, I think there's something wrong with Chris. Because, you know, all he wants to do is fish, right? Yeah. It's like, what are we going to do to want? Are we going to fish? We're
1: going to fish. It was just the way, I mean, uh, you and I uh, know uh, a young man that we've, we both kind of know a little bit, uh, Jonah Pasquale, and he's one of our friends. Son. Oh
2: yeah, kindred spirit for
1: sure. Yeah, kindred spirit with you guys are just, you guys were just alike. And I know he's, you know, he's in college now and he doesn't fish as much, but he, he just texted me the other way on the way down to Georgia when he was, uh, going home he's like oh we got to get out of fishing so he's still it's still in there simmering so it's one of those things for me i think i think the whole idea of fishing and hunting and hiking and camping it's this romantic relationship with nature
2: it is and it's a it's a calming thing right it's it's one of, i really can't explain it to people mm-hmm. it's just it's one of those happy places right And so i'm in my happy place whether it's you know on a boat on a river or if I'm out on a friend's boat or when we, when I owned a boat for the ocean, just being out on the water, you know, there's just one of those things. It's just a very calming thing. And it, I mean, fishing can be very relaxing. It can be very, you know, very active. It can be a whole bunch of different things for other people. Some people are very competitive with it and some people just like to do it. I mean, I even have people who I like to catch, but I have clients who say, I'm out here to fish. It's like, huh? I wish they would have called this thing catching, mm. not fishing. Mm. I enjoy the catching more than the fishing part, but. It's just one of those things since a little, since being a very young man, it's been just dyed in the wool. Doesn't matter what it's doing outside. You know, if it froze in New York, we ice fished. If it was open and flooded, we fished a pond. If, you know, we just always had a backup plan for.
1: Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting to me, your story, as I read through your, your questions, one of the things that popped out to me was, I think people like myself and I run into these people, you know, we, I like to hunt. That doesn't mean I'm killing something. I like the fish. That doesn't mean I'm catching something. And you're just kind of the opposite with that. you just like, look, I want to go out. I want numbers on your answers. You were like, I, I want to count how many. I want to count how big. And I want to be out there really catching them. And and as a fisherman, you want somebody that can get you on the fish, obviously, and, or as a guide. So I thought that was interesting that you, your passion is not only just to get out there and fish. It's not just to get away from something. It's actually to go to do something and to catch something. Yeah, I think that that
2: goes with my my education, my work as an engineer. I like to log things. I like to, you know, look at month to month, year to year. I mean, I have a log book that is close to 30 years old where mm. pretty much every trip, you know, I log, you know, 10 different things about the trip, whether it's, you know, the temperature, the, the air temperature, the water temperature, the water depth, where I'm fishing what I'm fishing with and what the, you know, the, what the biggest five fish were and, you know, how many fish we caught that day. And just as a, as a measurement myself, trying to figure out, you know, I won't say constantly getting better, but recognizing that there's so much to see every single day. There's so much to experience. There's so much to learn. I love that part of it.
1: Yeah. And that's, that is a fascinating part of you from my perspective is because I, you know, I like to fish. I love to try to learn about fishing in my free time, but, you know, you're as close to an expert as I've ever met when it comes to the science of fishing. And, uh, there is a science to it, whether it's weather patterns or whatever it is. So it's, it's, you know, I thought I don't need a fishing guide. I do some trout fishing. What do I, I just go out on the stream and fish. And the, the bottom line is to have a great time with somebody that knows the river and knows the environment. It's a lot of different trip. That's for sure. It's a different trip. Well,
2: it's a little easier to catch them. I think people give guides a lot more credit than we deserve, but it's a little bit easier to catch these fish when you're on the water 200 to 230 days a year, right? And even, you know, when I go on vacation, unless my wife insists that we do something different, there is almost always a fishing aspect to it, right? So it's even in my downtime, I fish.
1: Which well, and that's interesting as well. You're, I mean, I I know your wife as well, Doreen and uh through facebook and instagram and stuff i see your post and and about every fourth or fifth post she's in it i mean she's out there fishing and banging around there with you and i i think what a great relationship to have somebody that enjoys your passion as well she always been that way
2: yeah i mean i I, she's always enjoyed the outdoors and like i said we do do some tropical vacations where it's just a complete refresh you know
1: Departure from fishing, yeah,
2: but but we do tend to spend a, a week or so in New York every year fishing. You know, you know some lake, some place, and either we've never fished before, or someplace we haven't fished for a year or two, or and we just enjoy we enjoy spending the time together. And those trips are usually four three hour trips or four two hour trips in a, on a summer night or summer day, right? We'll go out maybe ten times during the week for you know two three hours at a time, maybe twice a day. Mm.
1: I can imagine that your family, when I call your family, I've seen your your daughter out there as well, and your son-in-law, I I don't know if your son fishes at all, because he fishes as well. There must be some sort of balance there, at least a mental kind of checkpoint for you to say, all right, am I, you know, we're on a family vacation, everybody likes to fish, but am I pushing this fishing thing too far? And
2: that's why I try to keep them to just a couple hours, right? So when the kids were little, they enjoyed the swimming aspect of it more than the fishing. And so I would literally, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for this, but... (laughs) I would literally take them up on the rapids on the Delaware and there was an island there and I would toss them out of the jet boat with their life preservers on mm-hmm. and I would run down the backside of the island and collect them with one of those plastic, you know, yeah. dock hooks, Yeah, you know, catch them by the thing, yeah. probably three, four or five years old at wow. the time. My wife was, you know, on a, a trip one year with her girlfriends to, I think it was to England and I had the kids for four or five days and We just Tom Sawyered it the whole time. We just yep. We went to some, you know, remote island and and rough camped for two or three days, and they had a blast.
1: That's great. I think the kids need to do more of that in this day and age. Goodness gracious, the quote unquote screen time that you're trying to limit your kids and and even adults. It's incredible. But I want to talk a little bit about your time in school as a high school student because it's a pretty unique story that you were part of the first computer lab in your high school. Is that right? right. So
2: the DOS system really came to the public around 1981. Mm-hmm. And so the computer lab that we had, you know, was was non-existent. I mean, everybody has a computer yeah. lab probably in their schools now, sure. but the computers were pretty much, you know, they were all almost mainframe type things. And then, of course, we got to the DOS system and the schools wanted to set up these little tiny, you know, black and white, DOS systems that people mm-hmm. could learn basic programming. Right. So I enjoyed math, did very well in math. It really excelled at science. And this programming language is just something that was fun to play with. So no. it was new. It was fun. Probably like anything like a computer game now, right? Yeah. Kind of like, you know, you have these kids that are almost IT experts from the moment they get out because, you know, you, they look at the back of, the, of, uh, of their either Xbox or PlayStation right. and it just, it just seems to come come natural to them. And it's probably the same thing. So, I think I lucked into a lot of what I've done, mm. right? The right time, right the opportunity, right timing. Yeah, exactly. So, it just happened that this technology was born and went to market when I was in the tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade, and so I was able to put you know together a school lab, mm. and um, with that, went to school to work on computers to to take some software classes, some hardware classes, and this seemed to be a
1: passion. It seemed to fit, right? Anything that was mathematics seemed to fit, right? Well, it is it is interesting because I read a book and it was called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you've read it, but you'd probably be interested in it because it talks a lot about opportunity and timing and some of the biggest software developers, you know, back in the early, early 1970s, Bill Joy and, and Bill Gates, all those guys that, uh, were kind of on the cusp of computers if you will wasn't necessarily that they were great at something it was more that they had opportunity and they were on the cutting edge of that you know that technology just like you were in a high I think Michigan was the first computer lab in the country one of the the biggest and best in in the 19 late 1970s I guess but when I read this book, it reminded me when you when you send me your, your answers, it reminded me of this because you were kind of like, Okay, I'm good at math, I'm good at science, and somebody said something in front of it that really just kind of sparked your interest. It was new and it was upcoming, and you had the opportunity to be on the, you know, the doorstep of that. What was that like for you as a I don't student? Think, yeah, so I don't think it really
2: hit until three years later, mm. three or four years later. So you know, I knew I worked at a Ford State, Ford, the automotive state dealership, fixing, painting cars or detailing cars or Mm -hmm. adding, you know, uh, graphics packages to cars, whatever needs to be done. And I, you know, you work a lot of uh, hours. And I remember, you know, coming home, you know, at 17 years old and blowing my nose and blowing all kinds of, of paint or primer out of my nose and realizing this is not the way to make a living, right? I mean, it's, god bless those guys who are out there in these these days with the bakes but they have to bake to the paint these days yeah. and so i just knew that that was something that that i just you know wasn't cut out for for very long and so i went to school and while i was in school we know they were we had computer labs we had yeah. microprocessing was getting where'd different. you go to school so i went to school at a tech school and then finished my school at penn state
1: oh at penn state okay and
2: so i didn't start there but that's where i finished okay so at the tech school two and a half, three years in Bell Labs came in and they contracted a group of us to come and start to work to start this computer aided design. And it was only at the time, a couple of years old. And when I I I, it was CAD for those, it was years. CAD. Yeah. yeah okay. It was CAD, CAD engineering. And when okay. I got there, I think they hired 12 of us that out of the, out of the class. And I finished my education through them. Mm. They paid for it. And we did a lot of community volunteering. And one of the community volunteering thing, it was a, Sacred Heart High School or Sacred Heart sure. School or yeah. Catholic School, I believe. We put a computer lab in their school. Is that right? And, and so Bell Labs at the time paid for it
1: and paid my salary in another. Co- so you guys are like 19, 20, 22 year old. We're 22 years old. 22 year olds on the cutting edge of putting these labs in. And just,
2: I mean, it wasn't anything fancy. It was just, uh, it was a school. It was a, a Catholic school in the town that we were in, in Allentown. Right. And they needed, you know, we volunteered. I forget what the name of the organization was, but. Uh, my mentor at the time, Oscar Mercado, he ha- was the connection to this school, and we did this for probably four or five years. We had a little computer lab and taught basic programming language. And I mean, you're talking back in the day when these things were just a box, yeah. TV screen. You so, saw a few games, and
1: yeah, if you look back on that that period of time in your life, just call it that three or four years that you did that. Can you remember what that was like? I absolutely do. I mean, I, tell me, tell me that must have been kind of surreal that you were on the front line of something new and exciting it it just it was just one of those
2: things where where when we came into this almost all of the integrated circuit design that was done at that time was done without computers Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine and so what my first assignment was was to create take these discrete components these transistors all these discrete components you know a, a timing circuitry or whatever it was and take them from a drawing and move them to a cad organization. Right. And then, you know, I got to watch the technology grow, you know, in 30 years from microns to nanometer technology. So I just got, I I happened to be there. And I, like I said, I don't know that, you know, you, the brightest and the best, but I got to be there when it was just emerging. Mm. So I got to do a lot of things with Apple. I got to do a lot of things with, with Texas Instruments. I, I did stuff for Bell Laboratories. Uh, I was, Working for and working for and at Intel for a long time, so I got to do some government work. It was a lot of fun, and, and it was a varied, and it was a pieces of stuff. So you know, it was pieces of bringing the USB two market into the market. It was pieces of when Sirius Radio was first designed. My team did the first IC chips for that, so we did all the CAD work for that that, which now a Sirius XM Radio, mm-hmm. but at the time XM was a competitor, and we were racing against them to launch satellites first and test our stuff first. So it was, it was actually a lot of fun to be on that, that piece. And for a lot of the technology, like smart TV, paying for a, a radio station, paying for TV that was free, yeah. just seemed insane to me. But if they were going to pay me to do it, it's like, that's, we'll do yeah, that. That's fine. But you know, the, the way the technology worked, I think just because we were the first ones there, we were the we were the first generation of it. Yeah. We really got the benefit. Like I said, yeah. don't believe it was the brightest uh, people in the bunch, but we we fit that need. And then as I got into management, you know, I was able to to go out and recruit from Penn State and pull some just awesome talent into our yeah. our designer tools. And so, you know, it was a fun twenty nine years of of my life, and I was very passionate about it. I mean.
1: Yeah, that was my next question. I, I wanted to, even you talking about it, now you're, you're a pretty high energy guy to start with, but even when you're talking about it, and you're recalling some of the things that you were involved in. It, it seems to me that they, that was a very exciting time. And the other part of what you just said is I'm, I'm getting that as a kind of a thread through all of my interviews is, and I feel the same way, I'm not the, really the smartest guy in the, in the room, but it gave me an opportunity. To, gave you the opportunity to day. bring in, and all of a sudden, bring in all these really, you know, these really intellectual study guys, or whatever you want to call them, to execute what you're
2: doing. Yeah, I, do. I, I listened to your last podcast, yeah. and I, I really enjoyed it, which a a story. But I remember him saying that uh, something along the lines: he wasn't the smartest person in the room, and I had a mentor once that said, "If you're the smartest person in a room, go to a different room." Mm. You know, if you feel like you're the smartest person in that room, you go to a different room. You're constantly looking for challenges. That's interesting. That's that's pretty good. You want to keep on growing. And see, the passion that I had for it was incredible. Um, I have some best friends to this day that still work where I was working. And I just lost my edge. I mean,
1: that, that last couple tell, of years- Tell me about that. Tell me about losing your edge. You use the term losing your edge. So you can stay, you know,
2: people talk about a, a golden parachute, right? I always call them golden handcuffs. So you're in, a, you're in a job that's paying you incredible money to do a job that you've been doing for years. And I didn't have the passion for it. So I don't think I was giving my team my best ever, right? So, you know, I, take, I like to take pride in what I do. I want to do the best. I want to offer the best that I can offer. And those last 12 to 14 months were tough. They were tough because I was torn between wanting to fish. I was torn from wanting to do something different. I was, uh, was watching a lot of friends retire and doing things that they really enjoyed. And I just looked at my team who was, you know, working hours and hours and hours and hours, and I just didn't feel like I was contributing to the level that I had been contributing at, at all the way through my career. I was very, I was ranked very high the the people I worked for love me. The customers love me. I felt like I was giving everything I had. We would work five, six, seven days a week. I would work 10, 12, 15 hours a day. It just was joyful. It was fun. I had a team of people that I worked with across the country and abroad. Um, even a team, you know, we even had a, a team in, in Xi'an China. So it was a fun, fun time, but I started to get burned out. And when I got burned out, the passion went away. And when the passion went away, I just wasn't giving enough to I could have stayed, sure, but it just was one of those things where I, I, I felt it was, would serve me best, serve the company best, serve my team the best to, to, to step away.
1: Well, that's interesting. The, uh, that kind of leads me into my next question is really how how in that period of time, how did you keep working those 12 or 15 hours a day, having the, the, the meetings at seven o'clock in the morning with your US team and then at seven at night across Europe and other places? How did you struggle with your life balance, your work, family life balance? So you think this can contribute back
2: to, to, you know, a good and bad lesson from my parents, right? So my parents were very hard workers. My dad always, he worked until just recently, worked six days a week in his own shop, right? But I think that the lesson that I didn't pick up on, and and I know that they taught it, but Sometimes you feel like if you're providing funds and you're providing if your kids never have any wants and they never have any physical needs that, you know, you're doing everything you can. But then you look back and realize that during my son's basketball game, when he was little, I was in a meeting or I was traveling or I wasn't able to be there for, you know, just the small things. And so my wife has been fantastic through this whole thing, right? I mean, I've even had people say, you know, they they all often say that, behind every good man is a better woman, right? Or somebody that can that can push it. And you mentioned here about mentors. And I think that she allowed me to be that way, but it wasn't without its cost, right? So cost to relationship with my children, which you know, I, I think I've completely mended and just wanting to spend more time with them, wanting to, to be more present. And I get to see it now really with my grandchildren, right? So that was a pivotal point to where I wanted to do something where I could do Monday through Friday, right? And step right. away. So the initial thought was I'll go into the boating industry and I'll, you know, I'll help design boats and work on boats and I'll fish a little bit and it was a an absolute perfect fit. Yeah, it seemed
1: to be a perfect yeah. fit. Well, tell me a little bit about that cuz I know that, you know, we kind of breezed over 30 years but <laughs> that's uh that's okay. You had that passion for fishing and then there was a there was a design component to your Intellectual capabilities and you ended up getting a, a job or, um, you know, starting a new career at a boat manufacturer, boat, whatever, sales, I guess. It was short-lived. I think it lasted 13 months. Okay. Um, I was able to do some CAD work.
2: Uh, we were able to to produce, you know, a, a new boat that was going to be called the All Pro. Mm-hmm. And I currently have that, one of those prototypes. But it was also one of those things that was really far from home. I was in Missouri. It was an opportunity to move. And I think that, you know, a, a whole bunch of courses of things that, were out of my control, pushed me back into Pennsylvania. Mm. So the boat company is not existent today. There was a number of issues with it. I think the whole shop got let go in October of 2015 or 14 or something mm-hmm. like that. so I returned home with the hopes to return there when when the financial piece of it got put back together. And it never really happened. So mm. I was stuck and you know you you go from a very successful life with a never ever being out of out of work. To all of a sudden, I was out of work, and what I had been doing prior to that was, I had been working on a plan B. And so, if you talk to a lot of my guys, especially to people that I had in the ASIC world when I was working in that element, mm-hmm. you know, I always tell people that in your career you always have to have a, have a plan B mm-hmm. with your life. Always have a plan B.
1: Explain to the listeners what an ASIC.
2: So uh, it's just a a type of integrated circuit. That's what we usually call VLSC, which was very large scale integration. Yeah. So at ASICs, and you knew ASIC was something that you did for another company. So if a company was looking for something that they either couldn't design in house or they wanted something you design it, it was an ASIC. If it was an in house thing, it was more customized. But it was a digital component, digital IC. And in that my my team at the time, I always told them you always had to have a plan B because you you know, the work would come, the work would go. You always had to have a plan B. So my plan B, believe it or not, was writing. Uh, I started to write outdoor articles and hunting and fishing in 1997, 96, 97. It was my first published piece in a magazine. And then by 99, I was actually on staff at a couple magazines as a, a contributor. Mm-hmm. And then I think 2010, actually 2007, I started to guide. A friend of mine approached me because he had an interest in guiding and he needed a second boat on a few of these trips because guys wanted to take, you know, your right. group out.
1: Was there ever a reason? Sorry to, to interrupt. There was there ever a thought coming back from Missouri that maybe Plan B is not in the cards for me. It wasn't. Maybe I a, need to go back to Plan A. Did, so was that a thought? The, the
2: problem with coming back is I was I came back before my two years were up. Oh, the non compete. A non compete. Right. Yeah. So you they they gave you a great great sum of money to go oh, find your passion. Yeah. And I was kind of stuck where the opportunity to go back wasn't immediate. Mm. So the short term plan B was to work at the boat thing, do do stuff locally, mm. guide a little bit. And then once I get this thing legal and past this time right. period, I can start to look at it again. And the interesting part was my wife came to me and she said, You found your smile. I didn't know I lost it. Wow. But she's, you know, it was I think what she was kind of saying was you're a lot easier to live with now. Yeah, what a and,
1: great comment, though.
2: Yeah, and she said you found your smile. I think you should try to make this work. And I thought there's no way I can make. How am I going to replace that? Yet yeah, with, the money yeah. I, and and you couldn't. You just had to change your lifestyle a little bit, right. right? And I enjoy it. And it's not that it's it's not a it's a great vocation for somebody in my position, right? Huh. Who has retired. And it's more residual income than it, than I would say it's, it's, it couldn't compete with the money I was making as an engineer. Yeah. But as I was working, I was really thinking that my, I would be a writer, one of those old guys smoking a pipe. Right. You know, writing stuff and taking pictures. And 2010 came by and a friend Blaine had, uh, was starting a show, a TV show called Backwoods Angler TV. Yep. And he needed a co-host. He needed, um someone who knew some other waters that he didn't. Right. Um, just to keep some variety in the show. And probably, I would say in a four-year period, I probably did 15 shoots with him. Okay. In different programs. And it was enjoyable. It was enjoyable because I didn't have to worry about paying the bills. Yeah. I didn't have to worry about running the show. Mm-hmm. He took all the responsibility. We had an incredible producer who is now, I think, with Texas Outdoor Sports or something like that, wow. Chris uh, Manley. But the, the show really was good. It just got too big too fast. And I think mm-hmm. that it, they got very expensive.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of those shows out there and that, you know, those are not something you take into a one-room studio and produce a real interesting, I mean, you're you're going out on, you know, out in the woods and out in the lake and how you got to have equipment that's mobile and people and...
2: So Jimmy Houston met with us. He was in the area doing a show and...
1: And for those who are listening because we have a different client, we have different interviewers or interviewees i should say who is jimmy houston i mean those that you know, i this is
2: one of the godfathers of television fishing on television Fish on he television. was he was a tournament angler who was very successful and he was probably one of five or six guys that were on that entry level floor with fishing shows terribly were, funny too terribly funny and just uh, uh just a really sweet guy <laughs> And we're expecting these words of wisdom to come from Jimmy Houston. And yeah. he sat down with us, put his arm around Blaine, I think at the time. And he, I think he said, and this is not exact, but I think the gist of it was, get out of this now, right? He was basically saying that, with it, that when they got into it, they were in the beginning of it, like I was in the beginning of my career. So there wasn't a lot of competition out there. Right. And he was getting out of it because at that point in time, there were so many fishing shows yeah. and so much out there, so much material out there, and the audience was changing. And he knew this, which was amazing. The audience was interested in something that was five minutes long, four minutes long, something they could, they could watch on the internet really quick. And if you look at the development from 2010 to 2024, the TV is completely different now. And the generations is looking at it very different. Yeah. They want something that they can watch quickly, 30 seconds. Three minutes. I mean, I had somebody tell me once that if I made a video over three minutes long, nobody would watch it. Yeah. So it's it's just a very interesting, and we were expecting him to give us this desirable information, yes, right? Push forward. Yes. You guys can do it. This is a great show. And he wasn't hurtful in any way. He just basically said, I think you missed the window. And I could see that.
0: This episode of Grind to Growth to Greatness is brought to you by Terry Barr. Distinctive Real Estate. Advising families across Pennsylvania and Northern Virginia for over 15 years. Visit the website at terrybarrealestate.com.
1: So let me transition a little bit into your guiding. I know that that's really the period of time that I met you. I mean, we uh, we went to the same church for a while. Then I found out you were a fisherman. That was about the time our friend Jonah was getting into it. And I did, obviously didn't know how much of a fisherman, but that's when we we started to meet and you guide. And then I found out, oh, he guides 200 to 220 days a year. And I was like, how does somebody do anything for that many days out of the year? What is your philosophy in your business? Do you have a general philosophy on how you run your guiding business? You said something very interesting in one of your answers to you. That you run a travel and entertainment business.
2: Yeah. So, you know, everybody fishes for different reason and everybody comes to fish for different reasons. So, I view me as travel and entertainment. So, every day writes its own story. Every client wants to do something a little bit different. Um, we primarily target smallmouth bass. And I have people who come out to f- catch a bigger fish than they caught the last time um, or are looking for a personal best, a PB, they call it, or PBS, right. personal best smallmouth. Or they want to come out and catch, you know, more fish than they've ever caught in their life. Or they just want to be on the river. Or they want to fish a new area that they haven't fished. So I don't, I don't like to go out. This is not to knock what anybody else does, but I don't like to go out of the same boat ramp every single day. I like to move around throughout the year. I like to be, I mean, I'll launch at a, literally will launch out of 15 different boat ramps through the course of my
1: And that's also, that's also something I, and, and you can speak, throw this in there, but. I mean, you spend part of the year up north and part of the year down here. Right. So that that in itself is... You know, I just, some, it
2: just fits my personality and it seems to fit my clientele. So I don't get bored about a launching out of the same ramp and I'm not knocking anybody that does that. Yeah. But I get kind of bored fishing out of the same spot all the time. And even when I'm up north, you know, I have 26 miles of river to play around with. And if I get bored of that, I can just drive a half hour away and, and put it in a brand new water and it feels new. Even though, you know, what is the old comment? You never step into the same river twice because yeah. it's never the same level, it's never the same day, never the same time period and the fish are never never operating the same function. So there's a lot to it that, that does it. My goal when I'm out there is to find out what they want to do and then make it happen. So do they want to learn a new technique? Do they want to catch a bunch of fish? Do they want music on the boat? Do they want silence? Do they want to just have a, a fun time being out there and catching his secondary which is hard for me to to
1: yeah. comprehend. And I was going to say is that a hard thing for someone like for someone that's so specific in his his work and so specific in his passionate endeavors? Is it hard for you to look at each individual client through their eyes or did it take you a while to figure that out? It
2: absolutely did. So I mean, I have a few different stories, but I can remember
1: I love, there's three stories in here. I got, I I mean, the story that I love the most was slow to anger. You put it slow to speak, slow to anger. Yeah. Uh, Which was amazing to me.
2: So the story that, that made me change my views came from one of my partner guides, Carl, who basically said, you know, you realize that not everybody has experienced the 50, 60, 70 fish day. And it's not necessarily important for those people to catch, you know, a hundred fish in a day, right? And it's not important for them to catch, you know, a four and a half or five pound bass. Sometimes it's just important to go out there and have the day they want to have. And I really didn't understand it at first, but I happened to be hosting largemouth anglers from out of state. And they came in, and it was during one of these times where I had just been killing it. Like I'm just, you know, it just, the fish were cooperating. Right. And they arrived, and the fish were still biting good, but it wasn't the same. And I could feel it in my spirit. Like, what's going on with these fish? We're not, we should be at 10 or 15 bass an hour. Why am I at seven or eight? And I remember actually getting really caught up in it and and getting upset. And to beat all, the fish were in the more three to three and a half pound versus the four pound range. So I was getting like a little bit anxious in my spirit. And uh, one of the guys said, this is a monster bass. And I could just tell by the way the pole was bending that it was just an average bass, but I started to listen to them. And every time they came in, they were hooting and hollering and talking about how hard these fish pull. And- I was about, at the end of the day, I was about to, about to apologize that the fishing wasn't as good as I had hoped it would be. And I, before I get the words out of my mouth, there was a pause. And I don't know if it was a spiritual pause or just a luck situation. Right. But the one guy said, I think this is one of the best days I've ever had fishing. Wow. And I, it, it hit that I can't live out what I expect, my expectations are what I expect. I have to live out what they're expecting. So, yeah. It is, it's one of those things where I could have ruined their expectations by saying, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't as good. It's like, well, yeah. it wasn't as good. So I just kind of let things happen and, and kind of go through that.
1: Well, you know, that's a perfect story. And there's a lot of parallels between that story in itself and what I do. And, you know, I'm in the real estate business. We sell real estate here in central Pennsylvania and Northern Virginia. But there's a lot of times that I have to reserve my own thoughts about a property to really see what that customer thinks of that property. It's interesting because every customer is looking for something different. Every customer has different expectations. They have different tolerances. They have different likes and dislikes and needs and wants. And it's not my job to put my needs and wants or my likes and dislikes or my expectations on them. It's my job to ask the right questions that are going to solicit that information so that I can see that property or that potential property through their eyes. And that's what that story to me just jumped off the page at me when you said that to me was, here you've, you recognized that your house was different than their house. You know, your experience and your expectations for them was different than their expectations were for themselves. Right. I thought that was amazing.
2: It was. And I think actually, you know, having bought a house and sold a house and hopefully buying a house soon. yeah uh, at your at your at your guidance uh, i see that you know I, I you know i always tell my wife terry has mad skills mm-hmm. so the slow to anger story is a is a very humbling story right so it was it's rare for me to have somebody show up late for fishing mm-hmm. and on this particular morning the client was about 15 20 minutes late and right. it, i was a little getting a little bit aggravated because i wanted to be the first guy out i wanted to to Take him to this one spot that I knew had some great fish, and he loves to throw top water. So I thought, you know, getting an early start right. would have really helped. And he showed up, and um, instead of bringing his regular partner, he had a young man with him, and which is great. I love, I love when to meet new people. I love having kids on the boat. And he was probably, I'd say, sixteen years old. And um, I had just got in a brand new shipment of these Daiwa reels that were just hot. hot, me hot yeah, yeah. Hot, literally. The cat's meow. Yeah. It was, you know, it was a brand new year for their LT series. And I had, I had waited forever to get these reels in.
1: And for those that don't know these, I mean, a a reel like he's talking about, I mean, you can pay 50 bucks for a reel and you can pay a thousand dollars for a reel. So the reels you're talking about are three or 400 bucks. They're probably
2: close to $300. Yeah. So this was, you know, I, 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 I like to have the nicest equipment available, but not so crazy that the clients couldn't afford it if they wanted to, right? Okay. So I try to keep my rod somewhere around two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars. I try to keep the reels somewhere around two hundred to three hundred dollars. So it sounds a lot, but it, you know, it's it's one of those tools for it, and they can get a chance to feel, you know, sure. what what's the difference between a two hundred dollars setup or a, a six hundred dollars setup. So I had these beautiful setups, custom rods, and this this reel on. And I could not wait to get this person's view on it because, you know, he's he's a, a consummate angler, so. We get on the boat, and the young man is fishing. He's very quiet, and he's enjoying the heck out of the day. He's catching fish, but it, I noticed he had a very strange way to cast. Right, and the way he was casting, he had his spare hand on the, the reel seat. Mm-hmm. And we would cast; he would twist the the nut. It mm-hmm. was holding the reel on. And I would tell him, I'd said, if you cast it that way, you're going to flip that reel, that reel off of the off rod because it kept on getting loose. I said, or oh, if you're yeah. fighting a fish. Right. we will come down. And, you know, I would tell him and he would stop doing it for a while and he would go back up and he was catching fish. And I'm a- attending the gentleman on the front of the boat and I hear this splash. It wasn't a natural splash, right? It just, you knew something happened. Yeah. I turn around to see his face. He's got his wide eyed and his face and he's got a beautiful rod, but no reel on it anymore. And we're in current, fast current. We're probably in five foot of water. And He's, I could see him pulling the string. man. And when he casts, of course, it came off. So the bail's open. Sure. So he's just pulling against the
1: spear. He's going to pull it right off.
2: And it was one of those things where it was just, it got to a point where it was stuck on something and there was nothing I could do. Yeah. No way to get it, no way to retrieve it. And it just popped it off. And they were aware that this was a, sure. a new wheel. And I, I remember saying, you know, I can remember being in my spirit and not acting like I normally, I think I, I would have actually said something a little bit derogative, right? Yeah. But I remember just going up, oh, hey, it happens. I got, and I hit him another rod and said, here's another one just like it, right? And he started fishing. And I didn't think anything of it. And the day went on and the day was saved and nobody was upset and it just, it went on. And, you know, I'm thinking, so today I'm not going to earn any money. Not a, not a big deal. But when you have 200 earning days and you earn sure. a piece, that's, you know, you're 5% there. Yeah. So it's just one of these days where, you know, you, you realize you're not. I just be, took it on the chin. Just took it on the chin. and yeah. and, and And like I said, it was, It was beyond my normal. I'm usually happy go lucky, but I'm never that happy go lucky. And so they said goodbye and the boy had a great time. And, you know, they leave to go home. And about two hours later I get a phone call from the gentleman who brought him and he said to me, and this was extremely humbling, he said, I gotta thank you for not making a big deal out of that reel today because this young man lost his father three days ago. And I want to choke him. I was like, Why didn't you tell me that before the trip? Yeah. Right. And I don't know if I didn't allow him to tell me or it wasn't a comfortable conversation but had i reacted in a different way i could have turned that day from being a success to a failure just in my my own spirit because i lost a 275 dollar reel
1: which probably anybody from the outside looking at would go yeah he had every right to get angry or every right to be upset or whatever but but the perspective of that day was
2: this boy lost his father i lost a reel which i can replace in weeks right I mean, I can literally put it on, it's on backwater. I can literally get another one in in two or three weeks. Yeah. So it just was very eye-opening to me that everybody comes and steps on that boat, has their own problems, has their own things. And they're there, maybe not to escape it, but to enjoy the day away from phone calls or away from customers or away from people like me, Terry. They're looking for a house going, Harry, yeah. hey, come on, man.
1: I mean, that's what fishing is all about for a lot of people, for most people, for and, me especially.
2: And so putting my customers first, trying to understand what they want, and the fact that you know, I've learned that for me, ninety-five percent of my business is repeat business. I mean, most of my clients are ten-year clients that come two, three, five, ten, fifteen times a year.
1: Yeah, I, I just, I when I read that story, I didn't know where it was going, and I when I got to the end, I'm just like, what another example of of our our need as people that serve others to listen very carefully to those people, what they're saying, what they're doing. And then I get caught up on our own perspective. And you said something when you were talking about, one of my questions is, what do you value day to day from professionally and personally? And your answer to me was, oh, it helps. It helps that I love what I do. And you said, few people enjoy going out on the rain on those cold days and to go through that. I explained to my clients that for nearly 30 years, I looked out of my beautiful window, wanting to be outside. And now that I am, I take it all in stride. It's my perspective. And I thought that was interesting because I'm not sure a lot of people can get to that after they make a change. You know, when it's cold outside and there's snow on the ground, we want summer to get here. And then when summer gets here, it's a hundred degrees. We want so winter yeah, to get here. Yeah. But as a
2: kid who grew up, you know, yeah. in a very rural area, you know, think farmlands, think miles and miles of woods, think of streams and ponds and Literally disappearing for eight, nine, 10 hours a day, like we did when we were youth in our youth. And then taking a great job and having a beautiful office and having great people to work with and looking out of this beautiful, you know, castle of a building yeah. outside. And all I wanted to be, even though I was in air conditioning, was just to be outside. Right. So now, if it rains or it snows or it's windy, I just, you know, I'm, I I got to enjoy this. This is what I wanted. And you know, it's, it's just, this is what I wanted. The other thing people ask is, you know, everybody guides a different way. Everybody has a niche. I, I don't, I don't fish when I guide. I will fish if you want to see how to work something properly, or if yeah. I think you're doing something different, or if the bite just kind of all of a sudden stops and I'm with just one angler, I don't have two, two right. in the water, I'll help fish a little bit. But my feeling is, is that if I'm fishing, I'm not paying enough to what you are doing. I'm not watching you do something wrong or right that I can learn, or I'm not picking, paying attention to how I'm running the boat. Maybe I could run the boat better. And the worst part is, is I don't want to take a fish from you. I think that coaching yeah. a fish from a client, to me, yeah. like, I never want to be the person that catches the longest or the largest or the heaviest fish. Right. Right. right, So especially if they're paying and they really want to catch this fish, I mean, I would rather let them throw 20 times wrong to a spot and coach them to figure out that 21st cash to get that fish or even let that fish that knows there go. Because so what, I don't want to. What drives that? What drives that in you? I think you know. I mean, I think it's when I was, when I was, on guided trips, I always felt that the guys that I enjoyed being with would say, hey, Chris, I've got this fish I want you to catch. Or, hey, I've got this spot I want you to catch it. And so I've been with people who are either miserable on the boat, right? right or they, they were-
1: They to make a living and you're their living right now right. and they're just right. miserable. And then you have some people that you feel like you're,
2: they're taking you out as a fishing buddy and they're fishing with you and they know where the fish are because they're on the water 200 days. So of course they're going to catch the fish. And I just I mean that again, everybody guys for a different reason and I'm not knocking people to do it, but for me of course, it just feels like I get plenty of time to fish on my own, right? I mean, I live on the water. Yeah. So if I if I want to fish in the evenings or I want to fish on a rainy day that nobody wants to come out, I can go fishing. I don't need to be fishing when I have clients on the boat. And so I tell my guides and I, I have great I have a great support team of guides that work with me. I tell them that the only time I want a rod in your hand is when you're handing it to a client.
1: Yeah. Right. Do they, all, do they accept that? They do.
2: I think they understand that they get to fish whenever they want. I mean, two of them are are, are reaching or at retirement. Mm. Um, one is just a few years away and the other one runs a campground business himself. So he gets to fish whenever he wants to. So I think that they they get it and, and they can choose how much they want to guide versus how much they want to fish, just not at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is I've always felt that you needed an incentive to work hard. Sure. Right? So, my guys are not crazy about the 10 fish rule. Did you ever, ever tell the 10? No, fish rule? tell me about that. So, the 10 fish rule is if you're on my boat, you and your partner, if you can't catch 10 bass in an eight hour trip, I'm doing something wrong, mm-hmm. right? So, I'm either not running the boat to enough places or I'm not educating you enough to do it. If I have to catch nine of your 10 fish or seven of your 10 fish to hit that target, that doesn't count. So, I tell my guys if those, if your clients don't catch at least 10 fish, which is usually yeah, you, I mean, the numbers that you bring in are acceptable so If you're not capable of doing it, then the day goes to a $50 fee versus our full fee. Mm-hmm. So the $50 covers your consumables and your fuel, uh, but your client either reschedules or insert their, their money back because you are- You're a pro. Well, you're, and you're, you're, you're providing a service. Mm-hmm. And there's days of fish you just literally won't eat, but at least by running around and trying to hit that, yeah. I know you're working and not sitting- in the same same spot all day long, trying to conserve fuel or because you're tired from a long night or not feeling well or whatever the reason is that you're, that you're not working for the, the client. This makes you work for the client. It gives you a little bit of anxious thought, can I get these guys to catch them? Because then everybody steps on the boat is as skilled sure. as the guy's trip. Well,
1: probably. you know, I've been I've been on your boat a couple times, at least twice, I think, if I'm not, if I'm not, if I'm re- remembering correctly. And... I don't know if we caught 10 or not. Probably as a boat, we caught 10. I must've caught. We were there in one of those dog. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was dog days of summer and it was, you know, it was hot and we didn't catch much. But my my memory of that trip was not the fish. My memory of that trip was, you know, this jet boat going over four inches of water up and down the river, trying to find different spots. And so I can speak directly to that. You know, if we don't catch them here the next, you know. 10 or 15 casts, we're going up to another spot. And we would, we'd go up to another spot and we'd, we we try to catch them there. And, and the experience for me as a fisherman was that it was getting up early. It, I have pictures that I, that I took on the way out in the fog against the mountain, just flat out beautiful. And that, for me, that's part of my experience for a young person, a kid, you know, it's like, I want to catch the biggest, I want to catch the most, maybe but I think as an adult, that's where I get the most joy. And so going out on your boat on one of those dog days that you're talking about was, even though we didn't catch a lot, was some of the most fun I've ever had. And
2: I don't know if you remember this or not, but you had been fishing with a reel that I had never seen before. It was, uh, and uh, I had commented on it a couple of times. And then when you tried to pay me for the trip, I said, no, that's okay, pay. And then a day later, you walked over and handed me a brain for a lot yeah. yeah. So it was just one of those things where, you know, I still have that reel. It'll be with me for a long time. If those cherished moments where, you know, it just was a really cool gesture on your part. And it was, it was, um, I don't know, it was just, it was, it was, it was an it. awesome
1: trip. I mean, I, I get, I get your $50 rule and no 10 fish rule, but you know, I, I'm also at a business like, you know, I, I show 10 houses at some point I'm going to sell one, you know? And so we get paid, but so that's interesting. So do you ever have the opportunity, and I'm sure maybe the answer is yes, but remember back, do you ever have the opportunity that the conversation is with your customers out there is, is more than fishing? You know, the person that wants to get away, you know, there's a lot of people that I'm sure that you serve that want, that, that's what they do. You know, they come back three or four times because they love to fish with Chris, and I love it. the person that wants to get away because he lost his dad. Or wants to get away because he had a bad, you know, week at work or whatever. Do you have the opportunity to do, because you're, you're a pretty insightful guy. And I would Um, think maybe it has some. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I've been with,
2: you know, the two questions I get most are, you know, what's some of your favorite things about the fishing? And it's generally not about catching, believe it or not. I mean, of course you have those wonderful stories where there's some great catches, but it's, um. You know, you when you've been with people for this is going on my 18th year guiding. 18. Wow. Yep. So I started, you know, guarding, cutting part time, and then of course the last 10 years full time. Yeah. Um, the interesting part is that you get to know people, you get to know their families, you get to know the hardships, you get to know, you know, the lost loved ones, yep. a parent, a spouse. You get to watch their children grow up. I mean, there's there's a young man that's uh that's got his charter license for running ships on the ocean that, you know, he was, he was a young teen when I first met him. So you got to fuel his passion, enjoy his passion, watch him and his dad, you know, react, just watch youths that, that, you know, were literally eight, nine, 10 years old that are now, you know, graduating from college and, and moving on to their lives. And you get to see them and, you know, it's like, I can't believe you grew like what, three foot since the last time I saw you. But you do have these conversations. You do have, you know, there's always these, I try to limit my political conversations on the boat because. Of course but there's always a spiritual element to it. There's sometimes when you can just tell someone's not having the best day and then you learn that there's something that's going on in their life that's just very, very, very tough. And you don't realize that you say anything or do anything, but you get home and there's a an email that comes and says, hey, thanks for 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 doing this. Or I'll have somebody who's having a problem with their spouse or their child or their father or something like that. And you, know, you might have an experience that you can share, right? And you're not trying to mentor or coach, but you might give an answer or a suggestion that that they might take to heart and it might work. It's just one of those things where sometimes i feel like a therapist out there.
1: Yeah. Well i was that's what i kind of wondered. i wondered if that's a an opportunity you're not you're on a boat you can't run.
2: Well, you're only yeah it's it's and it, this is another thing where you know you have you have people out there and you realize you're on a 20 foot boat which is a pretty large river boat. Yeah. If you have three people on a boat do the math you're 10 foot away from each other. All the time. Right. So you you know, and it's 8 hours usually 6 to 8 hours fishing. So you know, you you have to, I never want to take the auction out of the boat, right? So I want to keep the day going well, keep the conversation up unless the person wants to be quiet. So it's just kind of reading the room, yeah. you know, it's, and I've always been able to do that. I've always been a very good read the room kind of guy.
0: Whether you're a seasoned angler, want to introduce your grandkids to fishing, or just want to spend a day on the river chasing your personal best, Chris Gorsuch of real river adventures is your go-to guide for tight lines and fishing adventures booking now for 2024 go to realriveradventure.com or our facebook page for daily catch reports
1: so chris who do you take advice from you know we all think we know everything but when we really get in a pick there's a few people that I go talk to. A p- few people that I go garner some wisdom from.
2: Yeah. So, so tell me about. I think early on, I I learned to entrust, if, especially in the angling world. There's a few. There's a few anglers that, you know, we could talk theory of what we think is going on, right? So, you know, it's a it's a bass arm biting. You know, what do you think's going on? Or if if the if something's happening in the river that's odd, what do you think's going on? So with that stuff, I can sometimes make a phone call and talk to. My buddy, Todd, Todd's usually got his, his fingers on the river and he knows what's going on and that kind of stuff is easy when it comes to the business aspect of it and the financial aspect of it, or I have different people that I can kind of go to. I have, you know, I have people from my old location and I have, you know, of course I can talk to my father about things and I can talk to older clients about, you know, certain things and. It's just, I have a, I have a fairly good network, but I don't think I have any one person at this point in time that I would call my mentor. I think the role has switched a little bit for me where sure. I think I've become the mentor for the younger guides and people who, you know, when you first start to do it, it sounds crazy, but the idea of getting somebody to catch fish, especially if they're not really good at, and they're not the best angler in the world, right? it can be a very tough day. Or if someone is preoccupied or going through something so you know being able to talk that person off the roof so to say I think I end up being more of the person who mentors now so I had a lot of great people in my life that helped that from a boating perspective I mean Tom Snyder's been wonderfully helpful over the years I don't think I could do this could have done this without his help there's been people that are our guides that have been guides forever that have been just just wonderful Ken Penrod is is pretty much world renowned, and I can remember him. What, co- what is he re-
1: world renowned for? So
2: he's he's one of the guys who who's been guiding for close to forty years, if not more. He runs a guide service. I don't know if he's still guiding or not. Didn't see him this past year, but I can remember a dozen years ago when you know we were both launching at the same time. The river was high, and he came up to me and said, "Hey, you're Chris, right?" And I didn't expect him to know me from anybody. And it might have been more like twenty years ago, right. but. It was it was a long time ago, and he gave me some real great advice. Gave me some you know some positive feedback, and he asked me if I wanted him to put my boat in for me. Mm. So rather than just sometimes these guys who have these gigantic egos, yeah. they just they're in their own little worlds. And they're, and 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 from that moment on, and I've heard people say, you know, this about somebody or that about somebody. Mm-hmm. From that day on, I may, I make eye contact with people on at the boat ramp if someone. I ask them how they're doing. And if they say they had a rough day, I don't go tell them I had a hundred bass. Or I said, hey, I don't, not trying to to tell you what to do, but I really caught a lot of fish on this lure. Try this lure. And you wouldn't believe how many people that I've met again, that I don't even remember even doing that, that said, yeah, I remember you, you gave me this, or you told me to go over there and fish and I caught a bunch of fish. And it brought business. Because when someone said, hey, what guy do you want? What guy would you use on a river? He goes, well, I never fish with him, but I know, Everybody talks highly to this person. So I like to make eye contact. I like to talk to people. I don't like to um, puff my chest out very much. I mean, some people, I even tell people sometimes, you know, fishing the river, we're all starting from the same position.
1: Well, it's interesting. You had, a, <laughs> you had a, a good quote that I read and I wanted to read it and it's about humility. It says, ego is an important part of competitive fishing. However, being confident does not exclude being humble. Believe me. Being outwitted by a fish with a brain the size of a pea is just the tip of the iceberg. I thought that was, I thought that's pretty good because <laughs> you can get outsmarted by a fish every day. That I week. get some people on the
2: boat who automatically think that I'm going to be arrogant or something like that. And I, you know, I said, "Listen, I have my days too when I'm outwitted by an animal, right? That has the brain the size of a pea. So let's not let's not give me more credit than I deserve."
1: Yeah, kind of getting down to the end a little bit. How do you navigate? And you can you can boil it down to business, you can boil it down to personal, both separate, put them together. But how do you navigate the gray areas? And I, I mean, I look at gray areas in that, you know what, this is white and this is black, but I'm not sure about this area here. And part of me in my business, the go-to is to evaluate the gray. If I can't figure out which way it should go, then I, I get some advice. But how do you navigate those gray areas in your business and personal life?
2: It's actually a great question. And it may, I may be interpreting different, differently. And I apologize. I, I know it me if, if I am. But for me, the gray areas are just because you can go fishing in bad weather or bad conditions doesn't mean that you should. And what I mean by that is, yeah, we could probably catch fish, but is it safe? Is it a wise move? So I have two older clients and they're just wonderful. Tom and Ralph, there is their names. They will go out fishing if it is sleeting out and the river is at action stage. Mm. So I've learned over fishing with them for 10 years to say, guys, it's not safe. And that finally, that's all I have to say. But it took me a while to learn what their triggers were because mm. they're saying, are oh, you keep telling me we can't go fishing? It's like, no, I'm not telling you we can't go fishing. I'm telling you we shouldn't go fishing. So, you know, I, I try to look at every day and what I'm comfortable fishing in, you might be comfortable fishing in, and Am I able to deliver that product that I want to deliver? That's the gray area for me, right? I can collect the money, I can take you fishing, but yeah,
1: if I don't, that's that's where the dilemma comes. I think for, for a me, lot of people is, you know, I'm going to get a couple hundred bucks for this half day or whatever the cost is, and I know I feel comfortable going out there for the two hundred bucks, but these other folks that are on my boat, you know, it, maybe they're not as safe. As they should be as fishermen, and maybe I'm taking risks that for that,
2: you have to assume you like you have to assume the worst sometimes, right? Yeah. What if, right? So and it's one of these things where you know you have you know different weather services will tell you what the wind direction is going to be and what the wind speed will be. So it's a thirty five degree or thirty seven degree morning, and it's going to blow at thirty miles per hour. The wind chill is going to be down there pretty low. And your controls going to be tough. So if we were in a tournament, we would fish. But do I want you to come out, even though you're willing to, I want you to come out and fish that in those terrible conditions. Be miserable. Or 12, 15 fish when it's not the day. Now, if you need to get away, if you need to, this is what has has to happen, Mm -hmm. or you want to try it, I'm willing to, but it's making sure that they're doing something that makes sense to them, not making them, not forcing them to come. It's not a, hey, you booked your trip on this day and the weather's terrible, but you still got to come. So it's just, that's the gray area for me is I don't. I don't want to force anybody to do something they don't want to do, and I also don't want to, to deliver a product I know I can't deliver. Yeah, right. So the wind's blowing, and it's tough. You know, if you're really out there to see if you can catch them, and you—that's why you're coming out there. That's your—that's your reason for coming out there. Let's go. But if you're really thinking that you're going to be warm in this situation or you're right. going to be miserable, you know, once I launch the boat, it's more difficult to turn this off. So I'd rather not have you drive the hour, yeah. an hour and a half,
1: two hours. It's good about knowing your. Con- yeah, and
2: it's that's the gray area to me, is is sometimes doing the tryst because I want to buy, you know, my new equipment or mm-hmm. or I only have 200 working days. Right. It's being smart enough to know that when you can't, when you don't think you're going to be able to deliver that product, that you don't push the That makes
1: sense. Yeah, no, that makes a
2: lot of sense. I, it's integrity, right? It, yeah. Maybe it's not for everybody else, but for me, taking somebody out in conditions when I know fully well they're going to catch five bass just seems like a, a bad decision.
1: Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. you said, you mentioned that you'd been guiding for 18 years and part of my podcast is the grind. And we've talked a lot about your, your grind from your early years, even through, you know, starting your fishing and working for the boat manufacturer and those kinds of things. At what point do you feel like, or you think that you kind of went from all these different irons in the fire to a focused direction, which will your Guiding company, when do you feel like that really caught fire for you and, and started to grow to a point where you you have it, you understand your business and it's growing. And you've even talked about I have four people that work for me and I want to grow that to eight. At what point did it really make sense to you?
2: I think when I realized what this business is to me, right? When I was able to deliver the product that I felt proud of delivering and people enjoyed it right and you know this is the way that the guiding world works i think when someone goes out with somebody they become that becomes their guide and they never really know anybody else because that's who takes them fishing they're comfortable comfortable. yeah they're comfortable with that's probably as long as that person never moves on they'll probably be the only person they ever go out with Mm. and then i have people who literally want to learn from everybody they possibly can so they'll go out with four or five or six or seven guides a year Mm. and it's always i think when Some of these guys came back to me and said, you know, this was the best guided trip I've ever been on. And not because of what we caught, but because of how you operated the boat, how you taught my son or how you treated this person. And I think that when that click happened, when that moment happened, I realized that I had something. Wasn't just the fishing experience. Wasn't just the boat. It wasn't just me. It was the product. Mm. And it was by doing it, by looking at the things I liked when I was a client on someone's boat, and the things I didn't like, and then putting those things into practice on my own boat. So I think the feedback and the fact that literally ninety five percent of my business is repeat business. Usually by this time of year, I'm booked solid. So it's we're in January, and I probably have a hundred and fifty of my two hundred plus days. Is that booked, right? Booked. Wow. And that's not me. I think it's the craziness of, of the clients, but and I'll take a little credit if I can.
1: You have to dig a little bit at uh, the experience that you're providing. And, and I, I know from my own experience with your, with your company that I had a great time. And, and every time I think about it, I've had customers say, oh, I want to go fish. And I'm like, I got to send them with Chris because, you know, they're newer, they want to learn how to fish. So my experiences have always been productive and fun. And, you know, I'll certainly will be doing that again. But, um, Let's see here that we're, we're almost done, but there was one question that, that was interesting to me and it's probably one of my favorite, my favorite things was, it says how do you know, what's the future hold for you? What's next for Chris? And you kind of laid it out and you kind of said, well, 15 years ago, it was a remote assignment somewhere. Yeah, was, ten I mean, years ago, it was just, you know. Literally 15 years ago,
2: I honestly yeah. thought that I would be in either Europe or, or Asia. Yeah. And I would take a big contract for an engineering firm and yeah. I would do three or four years and get a great golden parachute. Yeah. And that's what I honestly thought I would be doing, yeah. right? You know, 10 years ago, literally I thought that I would be, you know, building boats and designing new boats and working on stuff. I had a, a true passion for it. And, you know, the door closed, right? And you talk about, I was devastated. When that door closed, I was kind of devastated. I thought, you know, I thought I really had a niche in it. I thought I made the right choices, not to be over-spiritual, but I I remember praying about it, feeling that this is where I was being led. And who knows what road you take, what doors close for another one to open. But, you know, it, it does take, and that was a very humbling time. And there are plenty of humbling times where without those experiences, I couldn't have gone to the next step, right? Yeah. And I just, you don't, you don't lay down for it. You just move, you know, you've got to do something. Yeah. And so initially, right now, if I had to, to answer that question. Yeah. I just want to grow my business. I want to, I want to grow my business. I want to have, you know, more family time. I want to bring other guides under our umbrella. I would like to, you know, right now we we have the Delaware River, the Juniata River, the Susquehanna North Branch, the Susquehanna Mainstem. I like the idea of being able to, you know, to grow. And there's, if I find like-minded people who understand exactly what it is, I mean, there's tons of great guides out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, it would be foolish to think that you're the best guide ever. I mean, just absolutely foolish. There's, there's so many top 10 guides, even in our own little area right here in Harrisburg. There's just, I wouldn't even begin to even think that one person is better than the other. But when I find like-minded people and watch them, them grow, I mean, I have a young he's not a young man but a new new to guiding but he's been in the in the industry for over 30 years mm. he's been in the outdoor industry fishing hunting and he's been a fisherman and he's been a professional fisherman and he's a tournament fisherman and he's on my team and we're good friends and he he this was his very first year and it was so exciting to watch him blossom just exciting to see you know him go through the ups and downs and 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 really succeed and man if I had you know, three or four more of that person, I would be yeah. the most blessed business owner in the world, believe me. Because it's just, it's wonderful to watch it happen.
1: How do you define success this late, let's call it late in your career, and this different career that you've...
2: Well, quite honestly, it's not, I've never really been driven by money. I know it sounds crazy. I, I, we all need money and I want money to survive and I want to be able to, to do the next things and I want things for my family. But I was never driven to money and I can explain that. In my engineering jobs, I would volunteer for projects that were like B projects and mm. things that my managers or my, I guess so it would, would be the, yeah. the director of North America would not necessarily want me to do, right? but I would do these QT things even if it wasn't in my wheelhouse. So I would learn. And mm. so whether it was, you know, building satellite things or, or doing the serious radio that started out as a B project because it was in another department, but I had team to do it. So I, I went out and I actually met with the person. His name was Edwin, and I said, "I really want to do this project. How do yeah. I do this project?" Yeah. And then I had to go beg my my uh, technical manager that, to allow me to do it. And his thing was, "You can do anything you want as long as my products get priority." So right. I, you know, it was one of those when I got into it, I had to work longer hours. I had to assemble a team, and it was a it was a very good learning experience for me. But you know, I, that was me, right? Right now. I'll tell my wife, I don't want to guide Mondays or Fridays. I just want to guide Wednesday, And then by within within a week, i am booked, you know, <laughs> Monday through Saturday. Yeah. And she said, I thought you said you didn't want to do this. I said, well, I didn't, but, you know. Here it comes. Here it comes. So here it comes. I think I know success every time someone comes off the boat with a smile or I get a, a text back from them or a comment at the end of the day saying it was a great trip or was the best trip they ever had or yeah. they catch their biggest fish or whatever they're there for happens. Yeah. Right? Because everybody shows up for something different.
1: Yeah. What's your biggest fear? My last question.
2: Not spending enough time with my family. That's a big fear, right? I've got grandchildren who used to live with us in a, you know, the the big house that you helped us find, uh, the the in-law quarters. And I got to spend the first four years of my grandson's life with them every single day, just about. Yeah. And so as they grow up and they're two hours away, and if we move further away and my son now lives in Oklahoma, so it's, it's my thing that keeps me awake at night is making sure that there's plenty of time for them. Yeah. Because I think most of us work for something other than what's at our, our job. We have a desire for something other than the work that we're doing. It's nice to have a desire for your work, but there's, what are you doing after? Mm. And so for me, it's investing in my family and my, my children and my grandchildren. That's mm. my big fear.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I follow a couple of people online. One fellow's name's Jesse Itzler. He's, he's a entrepreneur, owns part of the Atlanta Hawks and, uh, has had a couple businesses, jet net, uh, net jets and coconut water. And he's a very inspirational guy, but he, he talks a lot about blocking out time for family and making sure that your priorities are straight and with all the information on the internet, it's easy to go out and find people that will encourage you that way. And I I think it's so important. I was telling somebody today that I I have an interview with tomorrow. And I, I just said, you know, my adult life was making sure my kids were okay. Making sure I was providing with my, for my kids. And she was talking, she's a doctor here in town. And she was saying, you know, I'm going to go do this thing that I've always wanted to do. I wanted to be, you know head of this this department and my one of my daughters just said hey go do that and i thought that's what i'm going to do you know and so you spend part of your life working for your kids and that a lot of times that means being away from them you know and it's kind of that two-edged sword you know i I experienced that yeah so you know you traveled all around the world and you're you're trying to do the best for your family and 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 i do as well but you know i wake up both my kids are in arizona And, you know, my parents are in Florida and I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, I I need to do some things that are, that are helpful to others. So having you on here and letting you tell your story and your mindset through it all and what drove you to do the things that you've done and you've done them well is so appreciated because there's, I think there's a lot of people out there that if they just hear one thing that makes sense then this is worth doing something like this. So I want to I wanna thank you for being here. I appreciate you coming on.
2: Thanks for having me. This has been a blast.
1: Yeah, great.
2: I, I don't know how I fit into the word greatness, but I appreciate
1: Yeah. It. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. This is Terry Ball, your host, for Grind to Growth to Greatness. We are excited for this one to come out. And we thank Chris for coming on. Chris Gorsuch, if you have any desire to go fish, he's got 20 days left this year on his schedule. He could fit you in go to realriveradventures.com, I'm assuming. realriveradventure.com. .com, or you can go on to uh, Instagram or Facebook and get some pictures of those gigantic uh, smallmouth that he catches. I can I can promise you it's a great time. So thank for Chris for coming on and we'll tune in next time, next week with our next episode. Have a good day.
0: You've been listening to the Grind to Growth to Greatness podcast. Our passion is to talk to the brightest entrepreneurs, CEOs, creators, athletes, anyone who's made it, and dive in to their struggles, their successes, and their secrets. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Grind2Growth2Greatness. See you next time.